Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. There are a few things that were very interesting in this episode. I mentioned before, I actually didn't watch the episode until just now, um, whereas normally I watch beforehand. Which is why I um, asked, were you able to watch the episode? Oh, yes, yes, I was <laughs> able to watch the episode, um, which it would have been an interesting challenge if I hadn't. Um, you know, and, and one thing that's obviously a, a pretty significant difference between the movements represented here on this call um, comes up towards the end of the episode with, with uh, Nati driving to Tehillah's house on Shabbat. He obviously doesn't realize it's Shabbat. He sleeps for 28 or 30 consecutive hours. He has a very long nap. Um, and so he wakes up and it's Shabbat and he has no idea it's Shabbat because he assumes it's, you know, four hours later and not 28 hours later, six hours later, not 30. We have exactly what time. Um, and now all of a sudden he has his car keys and he, all, right, all this stuff on Shabbat, having no idea that it's Shabbat. So we figured that's a good jumping off point for conversations about driving on Shabbat. I think also, you know, another thing that comes up that's actually, I thought a very interesting moment is, um, you know, cell phones on Shabbat. Because when Hodaya, you know, Yifat is oh, very, yeah. very worried about Hodaya and, you know, worried about her well-being and then Hodea calls and rather than picking up the phone she says I'm going to go over there which ends up working Hodea's home and it's fine but theoretically you know it's, I think that's another conversation that could be had and maybe will be had um, about cell phone use in times where uh, where you're concerned about the well-being of the person um, and whether whether that is allowed. Which I think actually ties in really nicely to the way that the conservative movement thinks about driving and and the reform movement probably as well. Things about driving on Shabbat and using electricity on Shabbat that a lot of it also has to do with your your way of observing Shabbat and whether or not you're going to be happy sitting somewhere alone in the middle of wherever, unable to get to a shul or, or if you should be able to drive to a shul so that you can... Um, celebrate Shabbat in community and with other people. Uh, and similar to the cell phone, right? I, it was my instinct. I've seen the show and it was my instinct to think, oh, she's going to answer it, but she's going to like answer it somehow with a shinui so that she's not really answering it. Like she's going to throw it against the wall or something. And it's going to, you know, um, and, and then I remembered, obviously she's not going to answer it, but that, I think that's my own like projection of if you're really worried about somebody, obviously in Israel, you could pick up and walk down the street and, and you're there. But if I'm really worried about somebody who's not close enough for me to get to, and most people in my life are not close enough for me to get to, whether they live in Los Angeles or not, um, you know, would you answer the phone or not if you, if you feel like it might be an emergency? So I think those two things actually go very nicely hand in hand. Um, and mm-hmm. I picked the topic because Rye Pernick hadn't yet seen <laughs> the episode, but I think that that's a good addition because it does, it, it at least for the conservative movement speaks to that. Rabbi Shah, so what you just said is the thing I find interesting. Like, say she would throw the phone against the wall so that way she's not really answering it. And to me, that's my thought process. Is like, I think God's looking down like, you're not fooling me. Just pick right. it up if you're going to do all that. Like, totally. these sort of loopholes. I'm like, God is like, you're not fooling me. Just do it. 
yes. Or don't oh. do it, you know. But. Or totally. don't do I mean, it. You're, you're not supposed to pick up the phone at all. We could talk about that as a whole nother as a whole nother issue, but you're not supposed to physically actually pick it up, let alone pick it up. Um, but but yes, I agree. I think that a lot of the the things that we do, not just around Shabbat halacha, but in general with with Jewish observance, there are many loopholes and many um workarounds, so to speak, that you can figure out ways to um, to still be keeping halakha. And I'm not talking about in liberal movements. I'm talking about like real stringent halakha um, that still has those workarounds so that you can feel as though you are keeping the halakha, but also able to do whatever. So your your example is one that um, that is, yeah, it really it resonates in terms of someone's theology and are you keeping halakha? And this is another class for another time, probably not having to even do with this show, but are you keeping halakha because you believe that God sees every single move that you're making? Or are you keeping halakha because you believe that that brings you closer to your religion, your community, your practice, your, you know, identity? Um, or is there another reason? So I think those those are also pieces that people work through when they are becoming either more observant or living an observant lifestyle. Um, I kind of cut you off, Rabbi Pernick. So before well, I call on Denise people- has a question. So let's, maybe we'll have Denise's question. And then uh, I know Norm had a question before, but it seems to not anymore. So let's start with Denise and then we'll see where we go. Okay. So I have kind of one question and one comment. Yeah. Um, the comment is, in terms of, of um, adjusting life and halacha and how those two go together, I think that when there's a commitment to halacha, people end up making some really beautiful, amazing choices and finding creative ways of looking after the people that are close to them. And things that wouldn't come up, wouldn't even cross the mind of somebody. So for example, I have a bunch of friends in England and they're in the countryside. So some of them are within the Arab and some are not. And one lady is outside the Arab and she has MS. So that means she can never go to shul on Shabbos because of the wheelchair situation. Mm-hmm. And literally the entire community goes and visits that woman every single week. Wow. And it makes, and it's so loving and it makes her feel so loved. Yeah. And, and it's just such an amazing, beautiful thing. And I don't think that would really happen if she could drive. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so that's just one comment. Yeah. Um, the question I have is with all of these different kind of workarounds for cell phones and drivings and stuff, when they're allowed, is there some kind of, is, is that, hinged on some piece of halacha that we're reading and interpreting and saying well it says this and that really means that or whatever or is it more like people are saying well this is what halacha says but it really just doesn't work with my life so probably Pernick and I will have very different answers to that question which is why I was smiling so I'll let him go first (laughs) great so I think actually the cell phone and the car things are are sort of perfect polls in some ways for our conversation because they they really fall on the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of how forbidden they are. So cell phones are, we don't use cell phones on Shabbat. Fine. But with that being said, when you think about practically 
what, you know, what uh, Shabbat, you know, malachot, what, what prohibited actions you're doing by using a cell phone, you're very limited in what you find is actually prohibited in using a cell phone. Um, you know, your, it's electricity. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's self-contained, but, uh, you know, there's electricity, there, right? There's like little things, but everything related to a cell phone is, falls under the category of rabbinic level prohibitions. There's nothing, right? There's 39 categories of forbidden labors, malachot on Shabbat, um, or yeah, categories of forbidden labor. A cell phone doesn't fall under any of those. Um, or no, no piece of using a cell phone falls under any of those. It sort of falls under the rabbinic extensions of the law. So that being said, you know, we don't use it on Shabbat. It sort of falls under electricity, which is really a rabbinic, you know, falls under rabbinic things. And even what it falls under is, is complicated. Um, right? There's no heat generated. There's right, all, a lot of the things that could be bigger problems really aren't when it comes to a cell phone. So in a case where you're, you know, someone's well-being is at stake, um, using a cell phone, especially as Rabbi Schatz touched on, if you're doing it right with a Shinui and, um, you know, to Terrell's point about the loopholes, like I hear it, but the, it's also any, the, the prohibition is against doing actions in sort of the regular way. So anytime you do an action in an alternative way, right? If you normally write with your left hand, but you're writing with your right hand or something like that, right? It's a way of demonstrating I'm not doing this in the in the weekday mode, and that actually makes it less prohibited. So when it comes to a cell phone or something like that, where it's not super prohibited to begin with, um, and now you have a case where you're worried about someone's well-being, um, you know, especially if you add on, you know, maybe I'll, I'll open it with my pinky finger as opposed to my index finger or something like that. I'm not saying it's okay, but in cases where there's like concern about someone's well-being, it is certainly acceptable. Um, I remember at the beginning of COVID that, you know, we had a couple three-day yontifs. The first days of Pesach and last days of Pesach, Pesach were three-day yontif. And there was a lot of conversation in the Orthodox world about, you know, physical well-being. Um, of people who are alone and isolated, right? You couldn't go visit people because no one was allowed to go visit people. So there was a lot of concern about people's mental health and well-being and so forth. And a lot of rabbis put things online saying, I have my cell phone on me for all of Yontif. If you need to call me, call me and I will answer, right? And they sort of sent that out, Orthodox rabbis, to their congregants, um, for you know, before before the days of Pesach, because there was like a real concern. You add in it's Passover; people are used to being together for the seder. Now they're not together; they're home alone, and it's three days and so forth. So, like, and that was seen as totally permissible. That you know, we're worried about people's well-being. We're talking about a rabbinic level prohibition, maybe. Um, totally, like, let people know that they can call you, that you're available, and so. Right. So that's that's when it comes to cell phone. And that's why, again, with Yifat being worried about Hodaya and really not knowing, as my dad points out, she could be anywhere. Right. There's no guarantee that she's at home. And so I was also a little surprised that she didn't pick up that, she, you know, with a she knew it, with a, you know, doing it in an alternative way that she said, I'm going to go over there because if Hodaya was really in trouble, then it could be a bigger problem. Now, this is different from cars. And that cars are a very, I mean, 
cars didn't exist. But um, the way that cars function makes them a very clear Torah level prohibition of, you know, it says explicitly in the Torah, you cannot light a fire on Shabbat. The way combustion engine work, combustion engines work is by creating a physical spark that then makes another spark that then right makes the engine go. So like that is that is a clear Torah level prohibition. Um, which is not to say that there are no circumstances in, when you can, in which you can use a car. There are circumstances in which you can use a car. They just require a much higher threshold of need, uh, right? So if someone's life is at stake or even, you know, potentially their life is at stake, like no question you drive to the hospital. Um, beyond that though, it's much harder to find leniencies to allow for driving on Shabbat as opposed to again cell phones where because it's a less it's a less stringent law there's more room for leniency. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. Now, can't you kind of like um, driving on Shabbat is kind of like getting like prepping something that happened on Shabbat like your food to automatically warm and cool like hey um, I'm not saying pick me up on Shabbat, but if you happen to be in the area and I'm walking, could you like hop in a car with a person who's already going that way? There's Great a lot question. of conversation around whether or not similar to like an Uber or a friend or something like that, that you could hop onto um, a train that's already moving or a bus that's already going in your direction, right? If you don't have to pay for it, um, you know, is that different than getting into a vehicle that you have to start yourself to go somewhere? And in my movement, in, in the conservative movement, we would say it is different um, than getting into a car because you are not you are not telling that vehicle to go somewhere. You are just in the vessel that is then going somewhere. So you can't say to the driver, please let me off at such and such stop. Right. So you if you're on we don't really have public transportation in L.A., but if you're on like a subway or the metro or taking a bus, I assume, um, you you would have a place that you have to get off, right? And and if you're doing that on Shabbat, you wouldn't like pull the thing on the bus or or necessarily focus on, you know, if the metro isn't letting you off at the perfect stop, you might have to get off at a different stop. So you're not asking for the thing. It's like a Shabbat elevator, right? You're not asking for it to stop um, on a specific floor, you're just letting it run and you're getting in it. Um, so right. that is different than a car for sure. Yeah. And so, right. So there's different, le- again, right. Different levels of prohibition. So getting into a subway where you don't have to pay a toll or it's a pre, a pre uh, paid. paid toll kind of thing. And it's stopping automatically and it's already doing all these things, right. Is like, barely a prohibition if it's prohibited at all. And so certainly in a case of need, um, but even potentially not a case of huge need, if you have all of those preconditions met, like it's not recommended, but it's you're not really violating much of anything. Um, this is different than getting into a car in that, you know, if someone's going out of their way, it's not running automatically. It's, you know, it's stopping. They're letting you out. As Rabbi Schatz touched on, that's different than if it would have stopped and opened the doors at this location anyway. So there's a number of differences there. My dad asks about driverless cars and so forth. 
Um, this was a conversation we had in, in my Talmud class a couple of weeks ago where people are trying to figure out, you know, if you pre-programmed your driverless car and, you know, the door is unlocked, you don't have to unlock anything and you just get in and it's pre-programmed and you sit in the seat and it automatically goes to this place and it stops, right? So there are ways to make it, right, to alleviate a number of the issues. Um, whether there's ways to alleviate all of them, I think is is a question. Well, but you also you get pretty close. You also get to the point of at what at what level are you also just feeling as though Shabbat is now different? I was talking to another rabbi in Los Angeles um, yesterday. Yeah, so getting to Mardine in just a second, talking to another rabbi in LA, and he and I were discussing kind of this slippery slope that we entered into at the beginning of the pandemic with technology and our shuls and the liberal movements. And how do you stop that? And do you stop that? And have we learned something from it? And do we continue to have live streaming? Or do we say, no, that was just for the pandemic, even though it really served a lot of people, we're going to stop it, you know, moving forward. And one of the things that, that he mentioned was, it also is about, the fact that Shabbat was this time, once upon a time, where you did, and I'm talking, you know, traditional Judaism hundreds of years ago for everybody, right? There were no denominations at the time. You didn't drive. You went to your shtibel in your in your community. You were there with people. If you could be there, if you couldn't be there, you just didn't go. And that also was just like the, a feeling of Shabbat. And there are rules around doing things based on feeling of Shabbat. Even if it's okay to do X, Y, or Z, should you do it in kind of the the um, the framing of the essence of Shabbat? Is it does it make sense to do something even if it's allowed because it's Shabbat and it might take you out of that spirit of Shabbat feeling? So I think that there is there is a piece there, and the Marat Ayin piece I think is really big in terms of. What are, you, what are you trying to get across, right? Are you driving because you have to? Are you driving just because it's more convenient? Even if you were to have a completely electric car, which doesn't have the fire issue, or, well, it has the electric fire issue, but according to Rabbi Pernix, uh, talking about combustion, it doesn't have that same issue with, uh, with the ignition, um, or, you know, self-driving cars. At what point are you just not getting in a car because that's not like the Shabbistic thing to do. Uh, and that's that's a big principle in Judaism also. It's not just that it's halacha, it's also the way that you feel about Shabbat. Um, but Rabbi Pernik, the question you didn't answer that I am eager to answer, so I want you to answer oh. first, is um, Denise's question of when, when halacha, you know, is being used in these ways, is it being used through actual halacha? Is the halacha being changed? What? How do we kind of get to these chuvot around around different kinds of use? Um, in this case, around different kinds of use on Shabbat. Okay, so I think I think this is actually one of the fundamental differences between orthodoxy and the conservative movement um, is what happens when halacha and what we think should be the case conflict. Rabbi Shaz may disagree with me on this, but I don't think she will. Wait, the um, case? What case? What What do we do when halacha is written on the books yeah. and what we think should be the case, what feels right, what feels morally right? Oh, be the so case. Forth, okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. When, the, when there's a conflict there, yeah. 
what do you do? I would say that, right, by and large, within orthodoxy, there is a recognition of the challenges that, you know, and again, this isn't just when it comes to Shabbat, you can think in basically every realm, um, you know, challenges where halacha and modern life bump up against each other. And there's an attempt to say, okay, so is there a way within the halachic system, legitimate halachic system, um, to figure out a way to make this work? Um, right? Is sort of can can we is is there a way of of reading things? You know, reading the Talmud, reading these, and you know, in line with how they've been read, but but sort of finagling things in a way that that makes this new reality okay. And if we can't. We can't, and we'll, you know, sort of wait for someone else to come along who's more brilliant than we are, who can who can put together a compelling argument for why this is okay. Um, I would say the conservative movement sort of, well, I'll use the driving tshuva as an example, because I I read the famous driving tshuva um, just this afternoon uh, from 1950 of the conservative movement. Um, it's actually, as I mentioned earlier, it's really hard to find online. I think the conservative movement tried to like remove all remnants of this chuva from anywhere online. It's not on the rabbinical assembly page. It's like, it's like find it in the footnotes of a Wikipedia page from something that was archived from 2013 because it's no longer available. That is like crazy. Um, but anyway, the driving chuva from 1950 really doesn't try very hard to make a halachic argument for why driving is okay. It really basically says we people people aren't observing Shabbat. They're not coming to services on Shabbat. We need to have Shabbat, you know, Shabbat observant communities. Not meaning not necessarily halakhically observant, but people who are celebrating Shabbat. We need to do whatever we can to get people to celebrate Shabbat in community. And if that means people driving to synagogue, that's better than them staying home. And they sort of acknowledge there's not really a strong halakhic argument for that, right? From like on the books halacha they try it's it's a very very stretched and and they don't even try very hard to make the argument because it's not a compelling argument um but they say we we want people coming to services people aren't spending shabbat in community and so like we're willing to prioritize people coming together to come to services over the clear on the books halacha right so i would say that's a difference between the movements that in orthodoxy that wouldn't fly um Whereas, again, and this is a very controversial responsa, and a lot of people nowadays would say it was a mistaken responsa, that, that it's sort of, it's set the conservative movement down a, a troubling path, um, or it set, it set precedent for other things. But, but that was sort of, it was sort of our starting point is we need to make sure, we need to find a way to make this okay, is sort of the starting point. And if there wasn't a good way to make it through texts, then we're just not going to focus on texts. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to try really hard to not laugh my way through this whole thing. Okay, there's, there's a lot here. This is also a conversation that I've had with Robert Burnick many times, so I'm trying to... Well, I've never read the chuva before. So. I'm just very... No, I don't mean about the specific chuva. Um, I'm just going to try to be in the moment in this particular conversation. Um, okay, so to go back to, the, to Denise's question... Um, 
One of the things that I think the, the conservative movement tries to do, and Rabbi Pernick, you can speak, Rabbi Dan Pernick, you can specifically speak the reform movement and Rabbi Barber also, in terms of if this is the same in that in your movement as well, I just don't know as, as well to know. Um, in the conservative movement, when something like electricity or something like driving or something like eating at a non-kosher restaurant comes up as a question, and it's not just because oh, I would like to get in a car or, oh, it would be nice if I could turn on my lights or, oh, there's a non-kosher restaurant that I've always wanted to try. So can you tell me how to eat there? That's not how these questions are coming up. These questions are coming up for actual vitality of, of, of the Judaism that they're living and also to increase your um, Jewish identity in such a way that you also feel like you're living to the extent of, uh, you know, your life that you're excited to live. So that being said, the, for the, the very famously uh, known in rabbinical school, tshuva, that is not called this, but we used to call it the pizza tshuva, um, is all about how you can be stuck in the middle of the country, have no kosher restaurants, zero kosher restaurants, and be able to go to a restaurant that is not a pictured restaurant, but go in with enough knowledge, enough questions, enough um, creative ways of asking for preparation of something that you can eat a, an item of food that would be deemed kosher, even if there's not a mashkiach telling you that it is kosher. This chuva put out different ways that you could ask those questions, figure that out. Now, that doesn't mean that every conservative Jew holds by that in both directions, right? Some conservative Jews feel that that is not good enough and they should only eat at Hexhard restaurants. And other, other conservative Jews feel I can go to a kosher, to a unhexhard restaurant and eat vegetarian without asking 75 questions. And that is, that is keeping kosher to me. So it goes in both directions. In terms of the driving to, but it's the same thing. People wanted to be able to participate in community, to be able to get to an elderly person who couldn't make it to Shabbat or for whom you were going to spend Shabbat with them because that was how you wanted to um, experience Shabbat, right? You wanted to be there with them. And so the Concerned Movement decided, okay, we're going to figure out a way that we can get us to a place of comfort around people getting into a vehicle. And as Rabbi Pernick said, it doesn't say in the tshuva, this is okay, or you should do this, or please do this. Instead, what it says is, if you need to drive to get to your shul, or if you need to drive because of X, Y, and Z, here are the re reasons why we think it is more okay than prohibitive <laughs> for you to do so. But it's not a blanket, everybody should do it. And as Rabbi Pernick mentioned, maybe a little out of line because he's not part of the movement. Um, but the, 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 the conservative movement has often struggled with this chuva because it becomes a slippery slope of, oh, but I wanted to try to go to that shul in, I don't know, Northern California. No, that's a bad accent. That's too far away. Um, in the Valley, which is about 20 minutes from where I live. So I'm going to drive there. Well, the driving shuva does not say that you can do that. What it says is you can go, you can drive to get to your shul. So it's not saying shul hop. It's not saying go to the grocery store. It's not saying get in your car to go visit your best friend because that would be fun on a Saturday. 
It's saying if you need to get into a car to celebrate Shabbat in a way that's going to be meaningful, in a way that's going to put you in community, then these are the ways that you could get into that car comfortably and not worry that you're that you're violating, you know, the utmost prohibition in in Judaism. That being said, those of you who go to Temple Beth Am either know or just maybe assume none of your clergy will drive on Shabbat. Now, if there was an emergency in my family and I had to drive on Shabbat, I, w- I would with, without thinking about it twice. And if someone came to me and said, especially after this era of COVID, should I go online and experience Shabbat because I live too far to get to you by walking or should I drive? I would also, without hesitation, say you should drive because instead of having your computer on in your home and experiencing Shabbat alone without community, you should get in your car and you should be with us and you should not feel embarrassed about that because you're getting to your community for Shabbat. So it really just depends on how you're, how you are kind of defining for yourself what Shabbat observance looks like and where those hard lines are. And as Rai Pranik said, it's one of the major defining uh, pieces of our movements where you, where you can even ask those questions and have those conversations. Uh, yeah, well, a lot from a lot of, from us. So I'm interested to hear and it's Debbie and Steve and then Michael. I just called on them while you were. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is a hypothetical question. Let's yeah. just say that your conservative synagogue is having to hire a new rabbi, but there um, is no housing really in walking yeah. distance. So what what is what is that situation look like? Yeah. So, so it's a very it's a very difficult situation. Um, well, I shouldn't say it's difficult. It's a, it's a tricky situation for the community to decide. Um, the first school that I worked at in Northern California, they would have completely been comfortable with me driving, but I wasn't comfortable driving. So I had to say to them, well, you have to find me housing because I, I want to live in walking distance. That's not an option for me, even if it's an option for you. Other synagogues, like the one that I work at now, would not have allowed me to live far enough away that I would have had to have driven. So I think the shul has to decide if you're if you're okay with someone driving, which a lot of conservative shuls are, and with no judgment, I say that if you're comfortable with the with the rabbi driving, then great. Then you just have to find a rabbi who's comfortable driving on Shabbat. But if you if you the shul are not comfortable with the rabbi driving, then either you have to figure out housing nearby or something so that the rabbi the rabbi can you know fulfill that for the community. So I think it just goes, it goes both ways. But the movement doesn't say anything. Like it doesn't say in the conservative movement that a conservative rabbi cannot drive. It's based on the shul. There was another hand. Michael. Oh, Michael. Thank you. I wanted to go back to the question of Yifat for a second and specifically her getting in the car because I wanted to compare it between Yifat striving and Nadi's driving. Wait, does I she, think she got in doesn't get in the car. I think she does. No, I think she just walks over to Hodaya's place. No, yeah. but when you no, but remember, there is the scene of uh, the Hasidic rabbi, if I may, screaming Shabbat Shabbat to the driver. Isn't that, that Hodaya? That was, that was Nadi. Nadi. Well, I thought that was Hodaya. 
No, that was Nazi. It was Nazi was, driving Nazi away. That it was Shabbat. By the way, but, but uh, even if, but oh, even if, but even if I, I all right, then I, then your dad was right. I misunderstood that scene. But even if Hodaya, if he fought, had driven, I thought that was the equivalent to somebody driving to a hospital. I think he fought totally. that Hodaya might be doing something horrendous. A hundred percent. Well, then I mean, she should have picked up the phone, though. Right, because right, picking up true. the phone is a lot less problematic than driving. If she was really worried about Hodaya's well-being and didn't get a call from Hodaya and so forth, then driving would be okay. But right, to not pick up the phone and drive there instead definitely would not be the recommended course. Of but both of you think that she walked and didn't drive. Yeah, definitely. And we didn't even discuss that earlier to like gang up against you. We both came to that conclusion on our own. No, 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 no. That's <laughs> fine. Okay. Then I misunderstood the scene. Fine. Yeah, I think so. But but Rabbi Karnik makes a really good point that I hadn't thought of until he said it, that that if if she was really that concerned that she was in danger, then the lower prohibition on the level of you fought prohibition um, would have been her just answering the phone. And then had Hodaya said, I need you to get here right now. I need to be taken to the hospital, then get in a car. But but to get in the car kind of preemptively would have been would have been a higher prohibition than just picking up the phone. But I thought she said she tried to get her on the phone and she didn't answer. Right. That she was did. before Shabbat. That, yeah. that was before Shabbat. And then get her on the phone. She tried before Shabbat to get her on the phone and couldn't get a response. And then yeah. Hodaya called on Shabbat and she said, I'm going over there. Yeah. By the way, so Lisa brought up a point in a chat to me, which is interesting, which I hadn't noticed. That she said that after Yifat lit the candles, yeah. She said to Amir, well, yeah, no, call. call her. Yes. Okay, so I had I had missed that. Yeah, <laughs> but there's there, there's a whole there's a whole principle in candle lighting, like the I don't know, you can even call it halacha, but the the the, the practice around candle lighting that you can do candle lighting knowing that there might be something that you have to do after you've lit the candles. So even though even though she asked someone to do something that was at that point prohibited to her because Shabbat had been brought in, the fact that in her mind, she was going to ask Amir when he came up behind her to make that call, it was okay for her to light candles and then ask the question. It wouldn't have been okay had it been much later, right? Like during dinner. And it also wouldn't have been okay had she thought of it after. Like the intention, I know this sounds probably crazy, but the intention to ask that question or to, I don't, I can't think of another example right now, do something else that you wouldn't do on Shabbat. If you have that intention in your mind, even though you go and light the candles, you can do that thing knowing that you brought in Shabbat with the intention that you were going to do that after. It yeah. sounds nuts, but it's true. <laughs> right. So just one quick thing on that. So, um, and I see Norm and Karen both have their hands up. But um, just on that point, right, so we typically light, we, right, the time that we list for candle lighting is 18 minutes before Shabbat actually starts, which kind of gives you the, you know, there's sort of a window there where if you're running a few minutes late, you're still not actually late, right? It's all fences, so you're not actually lighting, uh, you know, candles on Shabbat itself. And so, and with certain things, you actually can ask someone else. You can say, well, it's Shabbat for me. I already lit candles, but it's not Shabbat for you yet. Can you do this thing? Because um, you haven't lit candles. Um, like back when I was living in Manhattan, 
um, we would light candles and then go to Mincha, like, right, because there were services where Mincha, Kabbalat Shabbat Mariv, which is typically the case Friday night. And so we would light candles beforehand with the Tanai on the condition that, you know, we're not actually accepting upon ourselves Shabbat until after Mincha when we actually, you know. So, yeah, so you can you can very much do that. And that's something I definitely regularly did. Um, the siren Norm and then Karen. Is, uh, the siren in Jerusalem is actually 40 minutes before Shabbat. gives you even more time. I believe that probably a third of a century ago, I learned from uh, Rabbi David DeRoven, um, who then lived in Los Angeles, uh, that when the woman lights candles, lighting the candles makes Shabbos for her, but that it's possible that her husband isn't in Shabbos mode until he gets around to making Kiddush. Yeah. And that would mean that there'd be a period of time when she, when, when, when she has made it and Amir for him, it's not yet Shabbos. So asking him to call and check or do something else to check on Hodea is not uh, such a shocking thing. Correct. Yeah, right. that's you exact. Can, that's exactly right. You can bring in Shabbat early. So by the way, so like, for example, many synagogues over the summer start services at 7 PM, regardless of when candlelighting is. So if you're in such a synagogue that starts at 7 p.m., even if candle lighting is at 8.15, you can have one member of the household go to shul, say Kabbalah Shabbat, including Mizmor Shiliyoma Shabbat, which brings in Shabbat sort of formally, right? Kiddush, all of that, get home, and it's 8 o'clock. It's not yet candle lighting. And another member of the household could be doing all of the malachas of Shabbat and so forth, and it's totally fine. Um, so for you, it's Shabbat, but not for your whole household. I, I know you can add to holiness by by doing it early, but but that's why I say it's not necessarily done for the whole household all at once. It can be, but it isn't right. necessarily. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Karen. I think I know what you're all going to say, but so long story, my daughter doesn't live here. And so on Shabbat, I light the candles, I do whatever, and then I'll call her and bless her. Mm -hmm. The time and stuff is not halacha. So I shouldn't bless her and call her? I'll answer this. Yes, please do. (laughs) Uh, I mean, unless you want to, Josh. Well, you're saying the time, meaning that when you say the time isn't halacha. Meaning she should do it the opposite way or not do it at all because she's calling after candlelighting. But again, what we're saying... My candle lighting may not be the right timing. Right. I light but, it when I get to it. You know what I'm yeah, saying? And I think this ties into what we're saying before. If part of your intention in lighting candles is that I'm lighting candle... Again, this is assuming the timing is before sun. the sun actually sets, right? Like, that can be okay. I'm lighting candles on the you know with the tanai, with the intention that I'm then going to call my daughter and then formally welcome in Shabbat. And that's okay. You know, that's something you can do. That's but, but if it's after oh, yeah. Shabbat starts, I'm bad. Yeah. I'm not good. I would say it differently. <laughs> okay, you can. You can. I would say I would say you should call your daughter and bless her every Shabbos, no matter what. Um, I think that's true. And <laughs> that's why I'm your rabbi. Um, and I think I think that, and I'm not saying that because I don't believe in halacha, and I'm not saying that because I don't believe that part of um, Rabbi Pernick's answer was was correct. 
but I think that if you start, if, if you yourself are not concerned about what time you're lighting candles and therefore you yourself are not concerned as to what time you are calling your daughter, then what's important to you in your practice is that you're lighting candles and you're calling your daughter and whether or not you do those in the quote, correct order or at the quote, correct time, I think is less important and more in line with the fact with like this driving in general, right? That if, if you are doing something because it's going to make you feel like that's your Shabbat or you're doing something that's going to make you feel fulfilled, that is, it's not halachic, but it's still Shabbat and it's still your observance and it's totally fine. Um, One more thing, one more thing. This daughter, my only daughter, you know, religion is the root of all evil. I mean, she made me a crazy person. And a a friend of mine, his daughter said, why don't you call your son, my brother, on Friday night? He told me, I said, oh, my God, that's fabulous. I started to do it with my daughter. I forgot once. And she said to me, Mom, you forgot to bless me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, I. Very important to her, to me, whenever I do it. I do it on a Friday. That's right. And I I think this really gets back to the conversation we had about the driving tshuva of sort of what's your starting point, right? The conservative movement says the starting point is the experience, the feeling of Shabbat. And if we need to overrule halacha to allow people the experience of Shabbat, we're going to do that. It's not overrule. Um, kinda. They sort of say it that way. They, basically what the two of us says is sometimes you need to sort of overrule halacha in order to get people, you know, what you think is necessary in this moment. Um, so they do sort of frame it that way. Okay. So that's right. So that kind of gets to this core difference of what's the starting point, right? Is the starting point sort of the spirit and experience of Shabbat or is the starting point like the by the book halachic experience of Shabbat, which hopefully is the same as the spirit of Shabbat, but, but not always identical. Norm. I just want to say that I don't think that that's necessarily true of every conservative rabbi or authority. Oh, absolutely. And there are many orthodox authorities who would, may not ever explicitly take that point of view, but would rule very leniently with at least some congregants on a wide variety of arguably very clear issues. Um, And so they may not be as far apart as one side and or the other might like to portray them. Um, That's it. I wanted to just add in terms of um, blessing the children which Karen mentioned. When our kids were college students, they would call Norm every week on Friday afternoon for their blessing. Mm -hmm. And even before then, I just felt like it was a, a very special opportunity for a very nice kind of connection or moment. For sure. And 
you know, my, my kids are adults when, uh, when one of our sons who lives locally um, comes for Shabbat dinner. We bless him. And I know that he will, he's not coming this, this Friday, but I know he will call on Friday. And, uh, or come by mid afternoon or something. Our older son, who has his own children, calls sporadically. He doesn't call every week. Um, <laughs> we did have a really nice experience once, or maybe more than once. Where, you know, there were three generations, and that was was really lovely. But when I tell people that have, that have, you know, three-year-olds, that if you start this custom of blessing your children, they'll call for it when they're living away from home. And don't wait until they're three. <laughs> I think that one of the things that we're seeing um, in this in this conversation, but also in this episode, that we see in Nati waking up and thinking, I really messed up with the woman whose name I can remember. And I need Tequila. to go and appeal to Gila. Thank you. Um, and I need to to get to her to, to apologize. That was where his mind was at. Right. It wasn't he couldn't have imagined, first of all, that he slept that long. Nor would he have gotten into the car, I don't think, had it been Shabbat. He probably would have walked there because in Jerusalem you can. Um, so I think that that part of that, and similar to some of the blessing our children and when and times and halacha and this and the other thing, I think that a lot of it has to do with what's your what's what's your mindset? What are you? What's your reason for doing this? And why, why are you making that decision? So one thing I've, I don't think I've shared this, um, very widely, but I, I know that I've spoken to Robbie Pernick about this before. Uh, my uncle actually tomorrow, seven years ago, passed away. And when he was suffering from pancreatic cancer, I had a very, I was in rabbinical school and I had to decide, am I going to drive from Pico Robertson to spend Shabbat with my family? Or am I going to miss out on Shabbat dinners with my uncle who I knew was going to pass away at some point? I didn't know how, how quickly. And I decided knowing darn well, what movement I was deciding to be in, knowing exactly how I felt about driving and all the rest of it, that I was going to spend every Friday night that I possibly could with my uncle because that was so much more important to me than whether or not I can get in a car or not. And so I do appreciate that in the movement that I am part of, that I could even have that conversation with myself of this doesn't need to be something that I'm um, disappointed in myself about or something that I feel guilty about, but rather I know that I'm making the decision to spend that time with someone who's not going to be around forever in a way that's important to my family. And I won't drive on Shabbat now to be with my family. As important as my family is to me, I won't drive there. If they want to have Shabbat with me, I have them come to my house. So the, that kind of Sha'at HaDechak, right, which we've heard that phrase so much during COVID of, you know, this time of urgency, you make different kinds of decisions. So when you know that it's for your child's best interest to call them even after candlelighting, or you know that you should drive to save someone's life, or you know that you that, you know, you're trying to get a message across or whatever, 
I think those are very different circumstances. And again, I can say that as a conservative Jew, whereas in the modern Orthodox to Orthodox world, those conversations just wouldn't even be had in the same kind of way. You would make a decision to still have that time with that person, but in a quote, halachic manner. So I would actually, so since we haven't gotten the reform perspectives, you know, in here so much, I, uh, I, I'll, uh, bring in my favorite other than my you know our two reform rabbis here on on the call um my other my other favorite reform thinker eugene borovitz um who i know bar rabbi barbara was a very close i had no idea where you were going with that sentence because one thing i really appreciated about eugene borovitz who's a major reform movement um theologian and thinker you know and hit and the way the rabbi shots basically des- described her decision making in this topic I would actually say is more of a reform way of thinking than a conservative way of thinking, if that makes sense. That sort of each situation is dependent on a variety of factors. And what what Rabbi Borovitz would say is, you know, you should know the calculus when you're doing things. And, you know, and there's sort of a weight of tradition there. And yet you can sort of overrule that if in cases where it's like, okay, I can't halakhically justify this, but... Like, this is a thing that I think is really important, and I'm going to sort of, for myself, right, because the reform movement's about autonomy, whereas the conservative movement is about halakhic flexibility. And so sort of that autonomous choice, you can say sort of, I know I, I might not be able to justify this halakhically according to a pure legal calculus, and yet, um, and yet I'm going to make an autonomous choice to do this thing because I think other other values to me in this moment are outweighing the the weight of tradition, as long as you're sort of taking that weight of tradition seriously. Um, so that's often, I think, right, and we've probably discussed this before, that there's often sort of a misconception in my mind that, you know, reform is the most liberal and conservative is the next and then orthodox is the most traditional, but they actually speak to different ways of dealing with these kinds of tensions, right? And reform Judaism is much more about Oh, good. Barbara raised her hand. Reform Judaism is much more about autonomy, halakhic autonomy, that I can make these kinds of decisions for myself, even if my, you know, I can't justify it halakhically. I have that ability to make these decisions for myself, whereas conservative move, movement is more about broad policies, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a legal body making these decisions for the movement, um, as opposed to orthodoxy, which is its own separate story. Okay, Rabbi Barbara as a student of Eugene Borovitz, uh, please. Um, so I think in the general Jewish world, there is this concept of that reform doesn't have to do anything. And, you know, they don't have to follow halaha, we don't have to follow halaha, we don't have to do anything um, that's halakhically based. And so consequently, I think also that people are very surprised when Reformed Jews keep kosher, observe Shabbat. Um, I can't think of any more things, but in that sense, because the truth is we we have to vote that we have looked at and made a decision. You know, a decision has been made about how to proceed. And there have been times when there are rabbis 
who were very much against those tshuva. Um, and and so that's that's all I wanted. I wanted to defend reform, <laughs> but, but I just I think that you know it's just a judgment thing. You know, it's sort of like I was thinking that every Orthodox Jew is a black hat. Huh. Right. Yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, for, like, for me, right, I identified as super Mahmir reform before I identified as Orthodox. Right. For me, I was never a conservative Jew. I sort of, I grew up reform. Obviously, my dad's a reform rabbi. I became very, very Mahmir reform. It's a very strict reform to the, to the point where I couldn't really go to any reform synagogue, but I still theoretically was a reform Jew. And then eventually I was like, well, this, okay, fine, I'm worth it. Um, but, but it was sort of that, you know, the, the type of reform Judaism that I described, it's, it's, autonomy, it's, it's about autonomy, but it's sort of, you, you should know what the law says. You should sort of and be making those autonomous choices, be, right? Choice through knowledge. Is, right, that's sort of the byline. So, right, so that's kind of the idea that you can sort of make those individual choices and say, I, I can't justify it logically per se, but like I'm going to make this choice for myself to do it. So I would say, though I would be happy to be a student of your father's and of the reform movement, I, I would say that the decision that I made was not actually based on a movement. I think that the decision that I made was based on my family and based on Jewish values and morals that I had learned about taking care of my family. And I don't, I would hope that that's in every denomination. And I would hope that that has nothing to do with halakha. And I would hope that that is something that across the board is just Jewish. Um, I don't think for one second, I thought, oh, this is a conservative decision or this is a reform decision. I think that I I was just I I was glad that I had the opportunity to make that choice and that decision based on a how I grew up, but also, you know, the denomination I was learning to be a rabbi in. But also I think that there's something very powerful about being able to know the flexibility so that you can and again, this is why I'm in this movement, um, but to be able to know the flexibility of your own Jewish identity to meet anything where where you're at, um, as opposed to feeling either inadequate or feeling like you don't understand or feeling like I just have to do this because it says so. And again, that happens in all movements, not just the predominant three and not just in the ones that are here on this call. Um, but I think that that the decision to drive in my particular case, I can't speak to other people's cases, but I think that my particular decision was just a family Jewish decision and a decision made out of love much more so than halacha or um, conservative Judaism. So I, I totally agree with you. And I think sometimes halacha and midot clash. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that there are times in which, and I feel this definitely, there are times in which halakha allows me to practice midot that much more fully, right? Yeah. And be able to connect to mitzvot that bring out those midot, those, those different attributes of Judaism that we connect to in different ways that if I didn't practice the halakha in the way that I feel so connected to that maybe I would just skip over those midot and not necessarily know. So yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely agree. And I think that, um, that it's good to, 
to kind of know where, where you sit in all these different places. Because again, if I could just say that I was Jewish and not of a particular denomination, I would, um, because I think that it's important for us to know the pieces of ourselves that we grasp from all these different places and not to getting into a car, right. Was crazy for his friends because they knew that he was this modern Orthodox ish guy, but at the same time, like he didn't, he didn't, you know, bash himself over the head once he figured out he had done it. He knew like, okay, I made that decision. He chose not to get back in the car, but he, he made a mistake. What? You're not punished. If, if you, if you do it without knowing you're not, it's, it's not. Right. Your yeah. Right. So there was nothing about it that felt like end of the world ish. And I, and I appreciated that in his, well, in the show's way of dealing with that moment. So I just want to say one more thing, because at that moment when he confronts Tequila, yeah, he is such it's it's all of his bad qualities. You know, he's yelling at her, and and typical of Nati, he's withholding information. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's yeah. It. Any other, we're at 7.15. So any other quick thoughts, comments on the topic, off the topic? Yeah, Michael. Just the instructions for next week were a double. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, right. thank you. Okay. Any other comments before we explain instructions for next week? Dad, nothing to add. <laughs> I, I guess I did a good enough job of uh, presenting the reform. You were masterful, yes. So I, I guess let me just very briefly, you know, Mort, <clears throat> Mordechai Kaplan, who obviously founded the uh, Reconstructionist movement, but he's revered by many, many conservative rabbis as well as reform rabbis and, and perhaps in the Orthodox community as well. <laughs> but his line was that the halakha has a vote, but not a veto. Yeah. And I think that's important with those of us who try to live a reform Jewish life. Very nice. Yeah. Um, but I do have to say that, you know, one of the things that I learned very early on you know, even before I became a rabbi, but I had a lot of experience in the Orthodox and the conservative world, is let's just say a very large number of people who are part of conservative synagogues do not live their lives strictly by the teachings of conservative Judaism. Right. And the same applies to Orthodox Judaism. You know, many, many members of Orthodox synagogues are not living Orthodox Jewish lives. Right. And at the same time, you know, I would have to say that the majority of people who are members of Reform temples do not make, as Josh said before, informed decisions, yeah. which is why every few years I have to give this line at a high holy day sermon that Reform Judaism is not an easy way out for wishy-washy Jews. OK, Reform Judaism has an actual theology, philosophy, etc. It's a real movement of thought yeah. and taking Judaism seriously, 
But I think all of us who are rabbis understand that even though we are kind of trying to teach at a certain level, that's not necessarily the way it's going to be lived by everybody in our congregations. Yeah. I actually brought this up this week in my bar mitzvah meeting with my uh, rabbi down here, Rabbi Gerber, who's reformed. I was asking, how does reform, the reform movement, deal with halakha because of the differences in orthodox and he pretty much he gave me this book to read called jewish living by mark wachowski that and it pretty much explains that reform comes out of a whole teaching of halakha and talmudic tradition explaining it and they argue that we're in the vein in the stream of halakha and i was like oh because i was getting to this sort of Theolo- you know, I just converted in January, this theological quandary of, can I be reformed and still keep Kalaka? Am I doing it right? And he kind of gave me his book to kind of reassure me, like, yeah, you're fine. Anything that Mark Wachowski has written, you should believe. And Mark Wachowski is a New Orleans boy. Is no, he really? That's what I was say, yeah. Yep, that's what I was told. He is revered in our movement, not only for his erudition, but for his menschlichkeit. He's just a really, really wonderful person. And and I guess just the way I've always said it, that if I wanted to wear a strimal and have payas and be strictly Shomer Shabbos and Shomer Nagia and, you know, the whole, you know, all of it, I could do that as a Reformed Jew if that was my choice. And the difference is I'm not doing it because I feel that it is halakha, that it has been commanded to me that this is what I have to do. I am making an informed decision so that I, as a Reformed Jew, wear a kippah. I keep kosher. I do a lot of other things. Um, You know, but not... And in my case, yes, there's more of a halakhic component. I, I value the halakhic component more than people in my congregation who may do or not do the same things but for different reasons. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.